0: prayer. Lord, we are humbled before you and it is so sweet to trust in you. Lord, we are humbled to be in your presence this morning and yet we rejoice with great joy that's inexpressible at times because of being on this side. We long to be with you one day to look on your wonderful face and what uh, joy shall be realized in that day. And yet today we are called to rejoice in you and to praise you in, uh, on this side. And so we ask that you would help us, Lord, to do so this morning. Father, we lift up uh, this church to you. We continue to pray uh, for her, that she would continue to grow and accomplish what you have set before us to make you known in this community and to the uttermost parts of the world as you give us opportunity Father, we thank you not just for what you're doing here, but in other churches in our community. We thank you for what you're doing uh, in Ashe County. We want to lift up Apple Grove Baptist Church this morning, and Pastor Julian Owen, that you would be with that church this morning, that they would be encouraged, that they would be uh, built up in you, that you would give them great opportunities to share the gospel. So we thank you for them, Lord, and um, that, that you are working in and through that congregation. Father, we lift up other churches in the Reformed Baptist Network. We lift up uh, Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Pine Bush, New York, that you would be with them this morning. Thank you for uh, all you're doing uh, in their midst, that you would continue to grow them and shape them uh, into your likeness, Lord. You'd use them in that area of New York, Lord, to bring many to you. And uh, Lord, we ask that uh, you would just show your grace amongst them this morning as they meet. Father, we also realize that there's many places around the world that are being persecuted and you tell us to pray for the persecuted church, to um, be, pray for them as if we're in chains with them. And so, Lord, we lift up the persecuted church in Laos that you would be uh, with them, that you would help them to persevere, that you give them great grace uh, even in that trial, whether they're imprisoned or facing death, that God, you would um, show your grace to them. Father, we know that there's many around the world that have never heard of you. And Lord, we are passionate about seeing the unreached, uh, reached. And we know that that's not just across the street here, but around the world. And so we lift up the Berber people of Morocco this morning, that God, you would send missionaries to them, that Bible translators would be, it would be heavy upon their hearts to make that, that people group a priority, that uh, many would hear in our generation of your great gospel. And so Lord, we pray that you would raise up missionaries uh, for the Berber um, that are not just in Morocco, but in many places in uh, North Africa. So we ask for your help there. God, we lift up the trouble spots around the world that are no doubt on our minds. We think of the war in Ukraine. We know that uh, you have uh, people there in both Russia and in Ukraine. Uh, But Lord, we pray for the crisis uh, as a whole as well, that Lord, you would accomplish your purposes You told us there would be wars and rumors of wars and you are accomplishing things that we cannot see right now, but we pray for your grace and your mercy on both sides that many have died. And Lord, we pray for uh, you to accomplish your redeeming work in the midst of this uh, based on your sovereign plan. We trust you. Father, we lift up Turkey and Syria as they continue to um, recover, Lord, from these earthquakes. God, that you would be with those who have survived and Lord, that you would give them their daily needs, but Lord, that you would be amongst the church and the missionaries there to make your gospel known, that uh, idolatry would crumble and a true faith in you would rise out of the dust of these earthquakes, that they would realize that they need a God who is real, a God who is able to hear them when they pray, to forgive their sin and to restore them and to make them like you. And so, Father, we pray that you would work this. Thank you for uh, helping us to be a part in a small way of raising some funds for this soup kitchen. We pray for uh, Asia Minor Ministries as they uh, seek to uh, establish uh, the opportunity to feed these, and yet share the gospel with them that you would give great wisdom uh, in their work, Lord, as they uh, meet the needs of, of these survivors that have lost everything. Father, we pray for refugees around the world in many places fleeing for their lives that you would be with them. Lord, you are near the brokenhearted and Lord, would you hear their cry and those that have come to our country, Lord, that you would help us to reach out to them. We don't forget those who have fled Afghanistan and um, other crises around the world that Lord, as we meet refugees, that we would be kind to them and Lord, we would realize that once we were um, without a place and you provided a home for us, And so help us to not just reach out to them in physical ways, but ultimately with your gospel. Father, we continue to lift up those who are grieving uh, and those who are remembering their grief from past years, Lord, as it comes to remembrance that you would be with them. Father, we pray for the sick. We think of Joy Riggs this morning as she is in the hospital uh, awaiting surgery on her gallbladder, that you would uh, ease her pain, uh, that you would comfort her uh, on today, which is her birthday and uh, just uh, be with her, Lord, and help encourage her despite uh, the situation, that you would uh, uh, just, just bring relief and, Lord, give the doctors wisdom as they operate this week and as she recovers. Father, we lift up our expectant mothers to you. We thank you for life in the womb and for adding to our numbers in biological ways, but, uh, Lord, for these families, God, that you would be with them, uh, Lord, as they prep to be uh, parents that will change their lives forever. Um, but Lord, that you would uh, just give them your grace. Uh, we pray that these pregnancies would be healthy and that uh, the deliveries would um, be without complication. So we just thank you for uh, these that are expecting, Lord, and we thank you for them. Father, we lift up uh, our church plant down in Wilkesboro. We lift up Christ alone, Pastor Tim, Lord, and his wife, Cindy, that you would be with them, that you would encourage them in what you are Uh, working in and through that small group. Uh, We pray that you would bring the final touches to uh, this building that they are seeking to get ready for Easter Sunday, that you would um, give them uh, great wisdom in in doing that, and that, Lord, you would give them unity as they approach that date. Lord, that you would draw many uh, to that church, that you would bless their efforts in sharing the gospel uh, in that community. We just thank you for them. We thank you that uh, we can be a part of what you're doing there. Father, we pray for our worship this morning that you would be lifted up and glorified as we look at your word, as we're challenged by it. And Lord, that we wouldn't be so foolish as just to hear it and to walk out and let it fall out the other side of our head. But Lord, that you would use it. You would help us to understand it by your spirit, that you would apply it to our heart, that we might look to you more clearly and uh, be drawn closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're getting back to our study in uh, Genesis and I trust that you have enjoyed uh, this study. Uh, We are going to uh, try to, by God's grace, finish uh, chapter nine today as we look at the final narrative uh, surrounding the flood uh, before we uh, kind of make a transition next week before going into uh, chapter 11. So uh, if you would stand with me as we read God's word together. Genesis chapter 9, we're going to read verses 18 through the end of the chapter, verse 29. This is God's holy word. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem, Ham, and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. And when Noah awoke from his wine and knew that his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years And all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it as we look at it this morning. You may be seated. Well, as we look at this transition uh, in the end of the flood narrative... Perhaps it seems like an awkward passage as Moses, the author of Genesis, writes these things down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so we know that every word of God is precious. We know that God uses his word to speak to us and to accomplish his purposes and that it has meaning. He wants us to interpret it. He wants us to understand it. He wants us to apply it. And so this passage is no different, even though it's maybe even somewhat awkward to read, even embarrassing. To look at. But perhaps we need to get into the mind of Noah a bit. Imagine all that Noah has gone through after the flood. Can you imagine being a part of the uh, pre-flood world and seeing the violence of the world and the wickedness of man and knowing that God has called you to build an ark over the last 100 years that you and your family would go into it with a portion of all creation of the animal kingdom and then for rains to come down and you to be on that ark for over a year and to know that all of living flesh had perished on the earth. To know that you found favor in the sight of God, but to know on the back end of that, what did the future hold? Consider that for a moment. Perhaps this makes you think of fear. Maybe fear of the future. Perhaps you have been fearful before and it's gripped your heart. After all, it's unsettling not to know what is ahead. Noah must have felt this, not knowing what was ahead, knowing that God held the future, but knowing that the details of it had not been disclosed to him. Often we feel the same way. We know that Christ is for us. We know what we have in the gospel, but we don't know what tomorrow holds. It can be fearful for us. Even more specifically, maybe we're afraid of the future when it comes to our family. In the context of Noah, all he has is his family, his own sons and their wives. And truly, Noah is thinking about the future as he comes off the ark. We know he puts his hand to the ground, as we'll see in a few moments. But have you ever worried in such a way about your future that it began to be crippling now, we don't have that in our text here that Noah was afraid, but I think it's important when we think about this in the context of future generations. We're thinking about what the future is and what, how, the, how sin itself will wreak havoc upon them because we can see here in this text that while Noah knew very, very well that God had destroyed the wickedness of men in his generation, he knew the reality that sin itself had not been completely dealt with. Why? because sin indwelt Noah. And this kind of fear could grip your heart this morning as much as it may have gripped Noah's. As we know, a remedy is to trust the Lord, as the Proverbs say, that we're to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and to not lean on our own understanding, but in all of our ways to acknowledge him and he will direct our paths. Truly, Noah had to trust the Lord going into the flood, during the flood, and after the flood. We know that he's offered a sacrifice and worshiped the Lord. This was his priority as we saw in the weeks past. But he gets a glimpse of his future here as we see in this passage. We see God working all these things together for his purpose. And he not only has condemned evil, but he's shown grace and favor for his own purposes and for his glory. Have you ever wondered that and been in awe of God's redeeming grace upon your life? A a fresh realization of the grace that God has given you? Have you ever asked that question, why me, Lord? Why is it that you would choose me in you? You read passages like Ephesians 1 where it says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world and we are completely at awe. Why, God, why would you do this? You could have shown grace to someone else. And sometimes on the back end of that, we can either be prideful in saying that somehow it was of our own doing, or we can be so humbled by that that we fail to live in the light of God's grace and enjoy that grace as he wants to be glorified in it. So all these kind of themes are, we'll we'll see here in this passage that God is working this For his glory. I want to look at five points here in this passage that will bring our attention to what God is ultimately doing, not just in Noah's life, but in our lives. First of all, we want to see that God works his plan of redemption through and despite our human ancestry. You ever thought you lived in a dysfunctional family? Well, guess what? We all are from a dysfunctional family, and Noah was no different. discuss that. Secondly, we'll see that God works his plan of redemption despite our atrocious sin. We're going to look at the sin of Noah here in this text, but also uh, the sin of his son. Thirdly, God works his plan of redemption through his anointed people and how God is working in and through those his chosen people, but also in those who have um, uh, rejected him. Fourthly, we're going to see God's work of redemption despite the actions of men that despite what we do or try to do, God's ultimate purpose will stand. And lastly, we will look at how God works his redeeming plan always in each generation for his glory. All right, so let's jump right in here to our first point. Look down at verse 18 and how uh, Moses, the author of Genesis, speaks about the end of Noah's life. It says, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Now, it's important to note this, that even here in the parentheses, you'll see Canaan mentioned multiple times in this passage. Pay attention to that, because God is using this passage as a transition, really as an act of prophecy about what is yet to come. And this is important in the the grand scheme of what God is accomplishing. And then it says in verse 19, These three were the sons of Noah, and from these people, the whole earth was dispersed. I don't know if any of you are interested in anthropology, the study of mankind, and where mankind came from. And even in science, we look back to uh, previous ancestors, but it's very interesting in the history of the world that's so plain here in Genesis that we can miss the truth that our common ancestors, yes, were Adam and Eve, but we don't even have to go back that far. Right here, we know that if this was truly a global flood and God's word is true, all of our ancestry goes back to Adam, I mean to Noah rather, and his sons and their wives. Most biblical scholars, regardless of what you believe about Genesis, this passage is in a chronological order of events that can easily be dated based upon the writings of Moses. We know that the the flood happened somewhere in the time of about 2400 BC. So this is relatively new history, if you will, concerning how the scriptures lay it out. Now, that's a audacious claim I realize in a world of science and superior knowledge today that we would like to look at these as just fairy tales, but it's not. When you consider how the earth population has grown, you can actually do trajectories backwards to see that again, our ancestry goes back to this place. Now, it's important that this text is its main text and its main importance is not where we came from, but it's a point here of verse 18 and 19, that from these three, the nations were repopulated, it could say. Some of your Bibles may have a footnote there, or from these, the whole earth was populated. That's what the 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 terminology there that they used uh, in the Hebrew to talk about being dispersed. In other words, repopulated and spread out came from these three three sons of Noah. And this is important because we see world history unfolding right here in this passage. And I don't want us to miss it. Just by way of acknowledgement here, we'll look at this more in weeks ahead. But really from these three men came different places of populations of that known world at that time. We know that we can trace back to Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the three continents of Europe, Asia, and Africa, and its disbursement amongst that. Now, we don't have time to comment upon what the geographical changes may have been during the flood on the earth, but either way, we know that they were being challenged and called to redistribute around the globe. And we'll get to this when we get to chapter 11 concerning the Tower of Babel, which arose out of their unwillingness to do that which God had called them to do. So in the midst of this, we see that Shem really was the line that we'll see that God um, was going to bless. Japheth was also blessed, as we'll see in this passage, and ultimately became um, those who uh, settled what we would now think of as uh, the European territories. Uh, In those days, of course, Europe didn't exist, but those uh, would go uh, forth to the Western world. And then we see Ham being the father of many Um, nations that would be in what we know as Canaan uh, in the Old Testament and and also in Northern Africa and Ethiopia and other tribes that were developed uh, from the um, progeny of Ham. And so these things are important, but that's not necessarily the point of this text. Ultimately, every point of text shows us not only what God is doing and how he's accomplishing it, but ultimately it's about God. Amen? Amen that God has something for us to see here in what he's accomplishing. That if you are tempted to think in this generation that you are the center of God's universe, this kind of passage will blow that out of the water. While you are unique to God and God loves you and cares for you, you are not the central purpose that he has you on this planet. Noah, while he found favor with God, was used of God greatly in his generation. But as we see, by the time we get to verse 29, Noah himself died. Our mortality ought to be ever before us. That God created us in our mother's wombs for his purpose and for his glory. And we do have an end. We are born into a sinful world and we will close our eyes in death one day. And this is not to be just morbid, but it's to be sobering that God has a purpose in our generation. He saved you for a purpose. And so we see here that God is working his work of redemption, even despite Noah's sinful ancestry. He's going to use them in a physical way. But notice that God is going to bring up spiritual seed through the line of Noah on to Shem and down to our precious Savior. Turn over to Matthew 1 real quick. I'm just going to peek at this real quick. We don't have time to to, uh, consider all of this. But if you're reminded about the genealogy of Jesus, notice in Matthew 1 verse 1, he says that Jesus Christ is the son of David, the son of Abraham, and he starts at Abraham and he walks all the way through verse 2, all the way down to the birth of Christ, 14 genera- three sets of 14 generations. And I say that not because Noah's mentioned in this passage, but for us to see that God is up to something in building even this prior to Abraham, which we'll come back to, obviously, in Genesis. But I want you to see that God's powerful work through human genealogy ultimately was to bring about the birth of Christ, but also to bring much praise to him. And so your name on a page matters in the sense of God using you and your life in each successive generation. So I just want you to see that, just, just to have your eyes look on that, that uh, genealogies are not just boring parts of scripture to endure, but actually uh, a beautiful timeline of what God is accomplishing. So turn back to Genesis chapter nine. Uh, you could also look at first Chronicles as well to see uh, God's faithfulness uh, to Israel. But in the context here of the ancestry of Noah, Again, Noah came to the realization that sin itself was not completely dealt with. And he had to realize this in his own life, but also in the lives of his children. Perhaps there's nothing more painful than to see our own sin uh, reproduced in the lives of our progeny. Perhaps we try to use that as an excuse. Perhaps we're making excuses for our own ancestry. Maybe you didn't grow up with two parents Maybe you are seeking to blame the last generation or squandering your birthright. My generation often looks back to baby, baby boomers and, and looks to them as their failure of why we are the way that we are. Millennials are doing similar things and we like to blame wherever we are in our dysfunction on someone else. And yet we know in God's providence that he gives us the families he does. Why he does that, he is, uh, has yet to disclose, but he does this for his own purposes but the truth here is we see that we're all dysfunctional we're all coming from a sinful seed that we must own up to and see and relate to God in light of and so yes some are more dysfunctional than others perhaps you think about your own family and you think about your own genealogy and yet God is working in you despite your sin in fact, you might be a first-generation Christian, and God has an amazing work that he could do over the course of many generations. And some of you have been in a, uh, a line of, of believers that has been many hundreds of years long, which is a grace and also unexpected when God you consider God's grace. So we see that God works in spite of our ancestry. Secondly, notice this text tells us that he is working his plan of redemption despite our atrocious sin. Look at verse 20. It says, Noah began to be a man of the soil. Let's stop right there. Where has Noah focused for over the last 100 years? He has focused in carpentry. He has focused in zoology. He has focused in even in anthropology and preparing a place for his family. And yet here in verse 20, it tells us that he switches in the post-flood world to be a man of the soil. I think this is so interesting because this takes us back to Genesis or the beginning words of Genesis. Where did God put mankind originally? He put them in the garden. He put them in a place where they are connecting with the soil that God made Adam out of. It's amazing for those of you who have, are are thinking already about how to uh, prepare your garden this spring. There's nothing like getting your hands dirty and, and putting seeds in the ground and, and watching them germinate and see the first green leaves pop out of the ground. There's nothing like it to see new life each spring. And we know that from the text of Scripture and the seasons of life that God does this to show us a picture of his faithfulness and his covenant with the earth after the flood, but also to remind us of new life, to remind us of what God is working in the midst of our own sin and depravity and the curse upon the earth, and so he labors in the soil, and like a good man, he plants a vineyard. He sees that there's going to be fruit from his labors, and he makes wine. We see in verse 21 that he drank wine, and he became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent, and so the context here turns. We see him working and, and Uh, planting a vineyard, and there's nothing wrong in and of itself to plant a vineyard, even to make wine. But notice that it turns very quickly to see that Noah becomes drunk. Now, the scriptures don't tell us why this happened. Scholars have looked at this for centuries and thought, well, perhaps Noah became um, depressed in the post-flood world to consider all that needed to be done and to Consider all that had been lost and all that, had, all that had perished. Others have said that maybe he miscalculated how to make wine and had done this prior to the flood and with all the atmospheric changes that somehow he uh, didn't get that mixture right. But regardless of how people will put their opinions on this text, the text is silent about why Noah did this. But sin never makes sense. And so scripture... Is silent here. And that's good for us. Why? Because we see here that regardless of what the reasons were, Noah sins before the Lord. And how do we do that? We know that not just from this text, because it doesn't say that Noah sinned, but we know from other passages of Scripture that we constantly interpret Scripture with Scripture, that drunkenness is condemned in Scripture. Why? Well, drunkenness is horrible for us because it, we lose our sense of uh, self-control, our sense of um, what the Lord would have us to. Even our own thinking and judgment becomes marred. Our discernment is low. And so while this sermon is not about, and, and the text itself is not necessarily talking about the sin of drunkenness, it's right here in our text. And it's a great time to hit it. Now, notice it's not condemned right here. We know that it's condemned elsewhere. But we know that Noah lay uncovered in his tent. And we know that our own sin leads to the sin of others as well as we'll see in verse 22. But as a note here, the issue of drink is important to notice here. That this wine or this oinos that is mentioned here, Is one that causes drunkenness, that can cause um, uh, us to be inebriated. And so, in the midst of this, notice that he drank so much that he became so drunk and he's out of it in verse 21. Perhaps this brings for some of you memories of your childhood or how alcohol has destroyed people's lives. And while This text is not trying to bring those things back up. It shows us the darkness and depravity of man. It shows how we can be addicted to multiple substances and we're called to exercise caution. But at the same time, it's not condemning wine or even planting a vineyard here. But our sin, we can take good things that God has given us and abuse them for our own purposes. And so for whatever reason, Noah has sinned here before the Lord. And we see here in verse 21 that as he drank this, he laid uncovered. He was naked. Verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, notice I I told you to pay attention to that because it mentions Canaan again here, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, it's important to notice here that in this whole narrative, Canaan is mentioned multiple times, and the scriptures keep pointing, pointing us to that because of what this prophecy is going to be about ultimately from Noah. So, despite Noah's drunkenness and his own sin, it's a context that God uses to give us an insight to the future of what is happening. And in other words, God is working even in and through our sin to accomplish his purposes. He is to be trusted even in the midst of great trial and let this be an encouragement to you who have even maybe been thinking about how alcohol has affected your family and your family line. It certainly has affected mine. I lost an uncle in a fiery crash years ago and he killed two college girls um, in a head-on crash. and it, it, it affects your lives. It, it, it causes your soul to grieve when you see people abuse alcohol. But God still works through that, doesn't he? He is still able to redeem in the midst of that. But notice here that this leads to a sin of Ham. Again, it, the scriptures are silent about what exactly happened, but it shows that he saw the nakedness of his father. And notice what he does with it. He tells his two brothers outside. So two things here. We not not only have the sin of Noah, but we have the sin of Ham. And notice that it's in connection to his grandson, ultimately, which is going to be discussed about the curse on Canaan. But the sin of Ham takes a a lot of focus here because we tend to look here on him and say, why is it that Canaan is receiving this curse? Well, We'll come back to that. We don't exactly know what the sin of Ham was, but we notice here that the focus is on the d- disgrace or the dishonor that Ham showed his father. Some have said it was mockery or voyeurism or maybe even some sexual act. But most likely, we see in here in the context, it has to do with the sin of the tongue, most likely. that Notice that dishonor was shown through its words to his brothers, he sees with his eyes his, brother, his father in this state and he tells his brothers about it. Reminds us of what James says in his epistle that the tongue is an unruly evil. Now the text doesn't necessarily tell us that but I think the closest we come to that here we see in verse 22 is that we see that he, the two parts here in verse 22 that he saw the nakedness of his father and he told his brothers outside. There was a a dishonor that he was showing his father in some way. There was a disgrace that he has shown his father. He was not honoring his father, even in the midst of his own sin. And that can speak loudly to us, can it? About even in the context of our own parents' sin, that God would want us to show honor to them, even in the midst of their failure. And we know this is contrasted in verse 23. Look at what Shem and Ham do, or Shem and Japheth rather, do instead. Notice they take a garment, they laid it on their shoulders, and they walked backward and covered their na- the nakedness of their father. Two completely different reactions to their father's sin. And I think there's something here for us to realize that in what ways are we allowing sin to wreak havoc? on another gener- generation without addressing it, first of all. Secondly, how are we dealing with it by faith before God? How, notice notice that, that, that Ham here makes a mockery of his father. Hey, guys, did you, see, did you see Dad? He's a mess. As opposed to how Shem and Japheth respond by showing him grace that he didn't deserve, putting a, a blanket on them and walking backward and covering their father's nakedness. Truly, we as God's people can respond in mocking ways towards a sinful world. That even though it's true that God will bring all sin under judgment, are we more to be like Ham or Shem and Japheth to show grace to their father even in the midst of his lowest days? So it says here in verse 22, that Ham, the father of Canaan, there it is again, saw the nakedness of his father, told his two brothers. Then Shem, Ham and Japheth, after doing this, it says their faces were turned backwards and they did not see their father's nakedness. So notice the emphasis there because Ham says it says he saw his father's nakedness and obviously did not look away. Whereas his brothers did not look on their father's nakedness. Now, without getting too sidetracked here, if you go into the Levitical law in, in, in Leviticus, Uh, great um, punishment was upon those who would reveal their father or mother's nakedness. In fact, even sinful acts against a brother or sister were seen as sins against the parents because of the issue of nakedness. Again, we remember that even after Adam and Eve sinned, God himself clothed Adam and Eve. One of the main reasons that we are clothed today, it shows that we have a need for a covering. We have a need to be saved. We have a need to have sin addressed. And this passage is no different. Noah needed a covering. And so in verse 24, Noah wakes up from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. Well, in what ways do we tend to mull over our own sin? Surely Noah, felt horrible about what he had done but often we tend to hold on to our own sin and be beating ourselves up when we know that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus while we are to deal with our sin and to repent of it there's also not a place for it to remain forever in our minds and our hearts and notice here that we are called to deal with our sin. And so he not only deals with it, but he also deals with the sin of his son. And it's not in a way that is unjust. We know that sin never makes sense, but we are called to bring it into correction. But God uses this, these next few verses, to actually prophesy that which will be the progeny of of, uh, Ham. Ham. And this is important because we saw in the context of verse 18 that these are gonna spread and all those are gonna be dispersed. So right here, God is not only showing that there's gonna be a dispersion, that there is sin still in the camp, as it were, in the human race, and yet God is going to work despite this, is all happening at the same time. And so we see here that we are walking in the same way in our generation, around sinful people and that God is working despite that. So thirdly here now as we transition we see that God also works his plan of redemption through his anointed people. And I want to that's not necessarily clear in our text here, but we clearly see this in the way that Shem and Japheth acted, ultimately bringing a blessing, and really how Ham acted, ultimately bringing a curse. And we see this thread throughout Scripture. Jacob, I have loved; Esau, I've hated. God chose us in Him, in Christ, to be uh, His people, and yet we know that even though we don't know who those are that are that are cursed. Uh, by God that are under the the wrath of God we know is our default location. We don't understand that and it's not revealed to us Is why we offer the gospel to everyone and call people to repentance. But we know that God is glorified even in the death of the wicked, even in the just wrath that he brings upon people in an eternal state of hell. And that is scary for a lot of people. And many would bring that into question these days that we cannot talk about hell or its effects. But the scriptures are clear about it. Why? Because God is holy and we've offended a holy God. And so hell is a true thing to be feared. But God ultimately is the one to be feared because he is the one who is holy and has been offended. And because he's an eternal being, hell is eternal. And because he's a gracious, eternal king, heaven is also eternal. And so right here before our eyes, we see two paths starting even in a new, uh, refreshed creation, if you will. But sin is still not dealt with. Perhaps that makes you think of the Christian life. While we've been forgiven of our past sin, we're confident of God's forgiveness in the future. We're constantly aware of his grace in our lives. There's still the Christian life that we live each day, and we feel the weight of sin in our lives and its temptations all around. Perhaps you can identify with Noah here in your own sin. And so, real quickly, we see that God showed grace to Noah by giving a covering through his sons and yet at the same time bringing mockery about sin through his son ham ultimately we'll see a faithfulness of god in covenant blessing but also cursing as we see here in this text but ultimately are we spending our lives according to god's glory are we living our lives in such a way that will bring him much fame. And so he uses these course corrections in the sin of our own lives to redeem us and to challenge us. And so how are we living our lives? Are we treating others with uh, contempt or are we holding out to them the word of life? I think here too we see this principle as the Proverbs say in chapter 11 verse 31, if the righteous is repaid on the earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? In other words, there's, we reap the harvest of our sinful nature as well as those actions of faith that God is producing in and through our lives. And yet God uses these things even in our own sin, as we'll see. And so God is working these things for his purposes. Fourthly, let's look at this point here in verse 24, that God is working his redemption despite the actions or sinful actions of God. Men bringing just consequences for his glory. I want to clear up several misinterpretations here of this passage that have made it into evangelical circles uh, in recent um, years, in recent generations rather, that as Noah wakes up from his wine and he sees that his youngest son had done to him and he curses Canaan, I want us to look at this curse about what it is, but we also need to say what it's not. First of all, this curse... Is not a, uh, a curse that is somehow shown up in the racial diversity of the southern regions of the hemisphere. Many would say that this is the reason for the dark skins of many of those that these tribes that came out of Ham. Well, the text doesn't tell us that, and it's dangerous to say that, lest it lead us to false interpretations. Many that have gone into false teaching over many years would even use this text as a reason to say that interracial marriage would be forbidden by God, and that's simply not what this text says. Nor does it say that one race is more cursed than another. In fact, if it says anything, it says the human race is cursed because of our sin, and we're all called to repentance and faith. Thirdly, I think there's here not a justification of this curse being that these peoples would be peoples of slavery. Well, we know that from the list of people that come out of Ham, not all of them were enslaved peoples. so that just burns up as, a, as an observation. God clearly was using these three men to repopulate the earth, but also accomplish his redemptive purposes. And so what is this curse? Let's look into it a little bit more. Look here at verse 25. I also want you to pay attention here how it's not just a curse in the immediate present with his sons, but it's future tense as far as prophecy. Look at what it says here. He says, cursed be Canaan. Now, let's just stop there for a minute. Canaan's not even in the picture. Canaan's Noah's grandson. Why is Canaan being cursed for the sin of his father. In fact, we know even in the, in the context of the rest of the Old Testament that the law actually made allowances for children not to be cursed for the sins of their fathers, but that each person would bear on their own head their own sin. So pay attention here. He says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. So while it's clear curse upon Ham's sin... Canaan specifically is being mentioned. I think there's multiple things that we can take note of here. First of all, our sin affects other people deeply. It doesn't stop with you. For those of us that have struggled with secret sin, it always bears its weight in our lives and the lives of other people. Secondly, notice here that our sin affects our families, our own progeny. We will pass it to the next generation the glories of the incarnation of Jesus Christ is that he was not of physical human seed. He was born from above. And just as we are called as Christians to be born from above reminds us right here is that without Christ, without his atoning blood, we are in our sins, we are cursed. But the future of what God was going to do in Canaan is clear here. We can immediately from this text draw lines to what he is going to do in and through the life of Abram, which comes right after this, starting in chapter 12, let alone draw lines directly to what God's redemptive purposes will be, particularly through Jacob's line and the 12 tribes of Israel, let alone what God is ultimately gonna do, as I had you peek at Matthew chapter one, to bring Christ into the world to be the savior of sinners. It's amazing what God is doing in this passage and he's doing this prophetically from a man who just woke up from his own sin. Then look at the further part he says in verse 26. He didn't just have a curse for Canaan, but he also has a curse—I mean, a blessing rather for Shem and Japheth. Notice he says, "Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant." So, notice the blessing again is is um, is upon them. It's directly tied to uh, what will be that Canaan, his own nephew, would be his servant. And those coming after him further with Japheth in verse 27, God would enlarge Japheth and he will let him dwell in tents of Shem. So there's going to be a relationship between those two brothers and let Canaan be his servant. In other words, there was going to be um, a, a, a prophetic changing of how these nations would be um, interacting with one another. And we'll see this obviously throughout the uh, prophecy of what God wants to bring to Abram's life is ultimately he would come back and uh, conquer the land of Canaan. So this is important for us to see in the light of all of Genesis. And so God's purpose is bringing this to uh, our attention. Further, I want to make comment here that, that Canaan um, is uh, ultimately the um, is is being sidelined for his purpose uh, before God that God is going to use him uh, for his own purposes. Now it doesn't mean that that Ham's whole line is is cursed in a in a way that we cannot understand. If you go back to chapter nine. Uh, verse 1, for instance, it tells us that God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So there's these common graces that we see in both Shem Ham and Japheth that God is still accomplishing despite that. And some commentators have said, well, the reason that um, he, he couldn't curse Ham is because God had blessed him. Well, that isn't necessarily, doesn't hold weight here in the context, but it is interesting to see that God goes straight to the uh, grandson of Noah for the purposes of his prophetic um, call and what he is going to do in his sovereign power. Lastly, we see here, fifthly, in this text, that God works his redeeming plan in each generation for his own glory. Look at verse 28. It says, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Some of you think you're old, you're not. Uh, 350 more years after the flood he'd lived a total of 950 years were the days of Noah and then he died what's significant about that as you read through the scriptures you see that our lives are represented by that dash between our birth and our death date no matter how long we live it's interesting here in the context of this is that each person will ultimately give account to God for our lifetimes and some, God, in his sovereign plan, oversees babies who never leave the womb to those who live on past 100 years, that God is working in and through this. And in this case, prior to the flood, people lived many hundreds of years. And many would say, oh, this is, um, this is not literal, but uh, you can actually watch from this point on, the, the lifespans of people start to drop off considerably after the flood. Now, there's multiple reasons for that, I think, uh, uh, in, in the world as far as uh, earth science is concerned and how things changed. There's no doubt that God um, brought about these things for his own purposes, that man would not live as long as they had prior to the fall or prior to the flood, rather. So in this, why, how, how do we pull this all together? What, what is a way to make applications? We see all these moving parts here. Do you see... First of all, that God is using our generation in the same way that God used Noah's generation to bring the hope of God's gospel to a dying world. Noah preached that. He he was a preacher of righteousness. He lived that in his character. And right here we see as a, a, a poor spot in Noah's life, a, a place where his character is is maligned in this way, but we realize that he is not all together able to be righteous without the Lord. He needs the Lord. And so this faithful character that we see in the last few chapters, the righteous Noah, who is, is God's servant and he's a preacher of righteousness, we find here at the end of his life that his life is wrapped up in a drunken stupor. How sad this feels probably for Noah to be represented this way, but yet Noah made known that he was not that promised one that Genesis 3.15 had proclaimed. And if we notice this throughout the the string, the redemptive string throughout Genesis, let alone on into the New Testament, that every one of these with this great expectation rises and we see their great successes, but then clearly the scripture is real when it shows us their failure. Why? Because we're not to just look to them. We're to look beyond them to a greater one, a greater king, a greater Noah, a greater Moses, a greater Abraham that is fulfilling these things, who is perfect and never faltered before God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have an assurance of your salvation like Noah did to live boldly before God with great joy? Are you like Noah's sons being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth, not just in the physical sense, because God, I think, would, would show us here that this isn't a, a call that stopped here. I think God is glorified in repopulating the earth with his image bearers. That, that alone is glorifying to him, let alone teaching them the gospel. But I think also it has spiritual implications in our lives. Are we populating heaven in the sense of how we are sharing the gospel with other people? Do we have spiritual children in that sense? Are we, are we owning our relationship with our fellow brothers and sisters and partnering with them to see the gospel go to places on the globe that it's never gone? Truly, there's sons of Shem, Ham, and Japheth that have never heard of the gospel that are living today, some in primitive conditions that don't know the right hand from their left, as it were as far as the Scriptures are concerned. That there is a God who is redeemed even 2,000 years ago, and while we're waiting on the second coming of Christ, they've never heard about the first. No matter our ancestry, church, we know that God can use, even from sinful stock, making a way through His redemptive purposes in our lives, to use even our sin to reverse the curse of it and use it to bring great honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see in the lives of even Shem, Ham, and Japheth here that fruit comes from that, either curse or blessing, that even today that we are called, even in the midst of our own sin, that God is calling us to himself and wants to give us his grace like uh, Japheth and Shem showed to their father. That God wants to give us a covering, not a temporary covering like clothes for Noah, but a covering that would be washed in white, that we would be Christ and be seen as uh, un, or not unrighteous sinners any longer, but righteous in clothed in the garments of Christ. Or do we find ourselves standing in our own blasphemy of other people's sin and blind to our own and find ourselves cursed before God in our own sin? Well, we are called to respond to him in this way. We are called to give account one day of our own lives. What, what will your verse 28 say? How long did you live after this day? After reading about this flood and these post-flood uh, years? How many will your years be when you die? And what will your life have spoken Will people remember clearly just your sin or will they see God's redemptive purposes in and through your lives and the beautiful mosaic that he has done through your broken life? Because we're all broken and yet he wants to redeem that. So church, by way of review, God, we see in this passage, shows and works his plan of redemption through and despite our human ancestry. Secondly, God works his plan of redemption despite our atrocious sin. Thirdly, God works his plan of redemption through his anointed people. Fourthly, we see that God works his redemption despite the actions of sinful man. And lastly, we see that he works his redeeming plan always in each generation for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you. And while we read this passage and at first glance seems to be a sad picture of a drunken man and words that came after. Lord, you were far more, up to more than, than what we would see at first glance in this passage. And Lord, at, when we look at our own lives, we at first glance might think that we are just a mess. And there's no way that you can use us. There's no way that we can um, be anything And while there is some truth to that in the sense of our own sin and our own depravity, you call us to yourself to deal correctly with our sin, to acknowledge it before you, to see your righteousness, and by your grace that you have covered us. Lord, we are thankful people that you are so kind that you would use even our own sin to accomplish your purposes as we'll see in the story of Genesis, let alone all the scriptures. And ultimately, it shows us that we ought not to trust ourselves. Lord, all of us can sin miserably in so many ways. And God, I pray for those who are overwhelmed by maybe like Noah would have been by his own sin, that Lord, today that you would relieve them as they turn from their sin and acknowledge it before you, that you would give them times of refreshing from you. That while they can't escape sin ultimately until the day that you bring them to glory, Lord, you by your spirit are able to put to death sin each day and give us times of renewal. God, I pray for those that may be hardened in their sin, that that don't want to admit it, that don't want to look at it, and they're in a desperate state as well. That Lord, without repentance, uh, your wrath abides upon them. If they've never trusted in you, I pray that, Lord, you would draw them to yourself. You would help them today to taste your grace that only you can bring because of the blood of your own dear son. And that a covenant with you is more than a covenant that you made with the earth in Noah's day. It's one that is eternal, that will never pass away. Father, I pray that you would guide us by your word to see that you are up to good, not just in our lives, in a day-to-day way. But Lord, how you're using us as a puzzle piece in history to bless future generations. And Lord, while we'll forget, no doubt, uh, people in our ancestry, there's no doubt that you use them to bring us to this day. That we are the results of many who have gone before us. And that Lord, you have used them. And Lord, you know us intimately. You know how we were put together in our mother's womb. You know who our parents were, their sin and all. Lord, you know how you're working our present uh, generation for your glory. And Lord, you're putting us in places for your purposes. God, would you uh, just help us to chew on these things, Lord, as we see your providential work in our lives. And Lord, would you be glorified and would we be satisfied in you because you are good and your promises endure forever. In Jesus' name, amen.